started a study in the book of Ephesians, and we finished chapter 1 last week, and it was a glorious chapter. Just very encouraging, 23 verses. If you're a Christian, Ephesians chapter 1 has got to be one of the most encouraging chapters in the entire Bible, if you know Christ. Because it just uh, delineates and unleashes one amazing, blessed promise that has been given to us in Christ after another as a Christian. It's awesome. It's almost overwhelming. It's almost unfathomable and unable to take it all in. We were reminded from Paul uh, in verse 3 that once we got saved, we received every spiritual blessing is at our disposal. He reminded us that we have been predestined before the foundation of the world. And God put a mark around us because he loved us. He chose us before the foundation of the world for his special purpose. Uh, he adopted us into his family, even though we didn't deserve it. He gave us his grace. He redeemed us, which means he bought us from slavery and from sin through the blood of Christ. He gave us an inheritance, which refers to the fact that someday in the future we're going to get something from him, a gift from him, a blessing from him in the future. Great blessings from God. Every Christian is going to receive an inheritance that's amazing and full of glory. Uh, On in chapter 1, he says that when he saved us, he sealed us with his Holy Spirit to let us know that he owned us and that we cannot lose our salvation and we are secure in Christ for this life and all of eternity. Then he went on to say that we have great power at our disposal as Christians. Even the power of God that raised Jesus from the dead is at our disposal because the Holy Spirit lives in us. And he concludes this whole amazing promise that we have been privileged to be a part of the church of Christ, which God has planned throughout all eternity. Jesus Christ has been building for 2,000 years, and the church is the beloved bride of Christ, and the climax and the culmination of all of world history and God's eternal plan and purposes, and every Christian is a holy brick, if you will, in God's blessed church. And that's how that chapter ends. It's just amazing. It is awesome. You can, there is a temptation there to get a little uh, big-headed at the end of the chapter about how great you are in Christ. So now it's time to be humbled, and that's chapter 2. And Paul's going to tell us, and so let's go to Ephesians chapter 2. That's where we're looking today. And Paul lets us know that, you know, all these great, wonderful things that are true about the believer in Christ haven't always been true. Before, that, before there was good news, Paul tells us there was bad news. That's just the life of being a Christian, isn't it? We go out to share the good news with people, but we also, as we tell people the good news, we have to tell them the bad news, don't we? And people usually don't want to hear the bad news. But they must hear the bad news because it is the truth. So people must hear the truth, and Paul is going to remind us of the baddest news in the history of the world and humanity in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, and that's what we're looking at today. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, I call it the way we were. Now, maybe you're thinking, when you hear the way we were, you're thinking of that song and Barbara Streisand and her blue eyes and the number one uh, bestseller in 1974 and Robert Redford and his blonde hair and what a hunk he was and how romantic and uh, gives you the goosebumps and that kind of thing. Gives you warm fuzzies, doesn't it? Well, that isn't what I want to talk about at all. This isn't going to give you warm fuzzies today about the way we were, the way Christians were before they got saved is what Paul's talking about. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, it's basically our, our autobiography, what we were like before we got saved. And it was not a pretty picture. It was a, an abysmal, dismal picture, but it's true. And let me read that. Follow along as I read Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, as Paul reminds Christians of what they used to be like, the way they were before they got saved. It starts in verse 1, and he says, And you, Christians, were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, 
of the Spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. So that is our autobiography. That's the way we were. That's who we used to be before we became Christians. And it's pretty sad and pathetic, isn't it? And we're going to delve into the details of that, of what we used to be like. Some people will resist this and say, well, I wasn't a sinner, or I wasn't that bad, or I wasn't this pathetic, or this isn't true of me. Well, that's pride, if somebody says that. Because the Apostle Paul, the greatest Christian there ever was, the greatest apostle there ever was, identifies himself in this category of pathetic sinners. In verse 3, when he said, Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh. So the Apostle Paul, the great Christian of all time, is humble enough to admit that he too was a pathetic, miserable, lost sinner before he knew Christ. And if the Apostle Paul can say that, how much more can every single one of us be willing to identify our true identity before we met Christ? So before we hear the good news, we've got to know the bad news. And also, after we receive the good news, we have to be reminded time and time again of the bad news because hearing the bad news puts the good news in contrast for us, doesn't it? Hearing the bad news and the reminders reminds us to be thankful, right, of who we are now in Christ, of what we have been saved from. So it's not just unbelievers that need to hear this message. Actually, Paul is preaching this to Christians. They need to be reminded from what they were saved from and how bad they were. And this is healthy for the soul. So we need a good, accurate, full, comprehensive diagnosis of how spiritually sick we used to be. And that's Paul's goal right here. We need a diagnosis. To get healthy, you need an accurate diagnosis, don't you? Now, I was willing and humble enough in second grade to understand and admit that. I was open to a full diagnosis as a second grader. As a second grader when I was eight years old, 30-some-odd years ago, I had a strange habit that I took on. Actually, it became a hobby. I had nine older brothers and sisters, and as an eight-year-old, I began to go around and grab one of my older siblings and lift them up the air and see how high and how long I could hold them in the air as a little eight-year-old. And so I was pretty proud of myself about how strong I was, and I was doing this particularly to my older brothers and sisters for, for months on end. And everybody thought it was funny. Oh, look at little Cliffy picking up all of his older fat siblings. Oh, I hope they don't hear that. Um, for several months, look at how strong I am, super cliff, uh, and doing this for month after month after month. And then after several months, um, I felt kind of a strange sensation down in my gut. And then I looked down there and noticed there was like a, my skin was bubbled and bumped. And I began to fear, oh my, this is abnormal, what's going on? So I showed it to my dad and he said, I think you have a hernia. How did he know that? He had a hernia. Took us to the doctor, the doctor looked at it and said, I think you have a hernia. He referred me to a surgeon. The surgeon said, I think you have a hernia. So there I was, an eight-year-old who got a hernia. And the first time when my dad said, I think you have a hernia, I wanted to go to the doctor because I wanted to get a diagnosis because I wanted it to get fixed. I wanted to hear the bad news and be sure of what it was so I could be healed. So I wanted an accurate, comprehensive diagnosis before or so that I could get healed. Uh, And then, you know, 30 years later, I didn't have the same attitude. I wasn't into a diagnosis as much as I got to be older and more prideful and self-sufficient. About two or three years ago, we went sledding uh, in the mountains, not too far from here, and it was a February, and we were on a sled, and Brianna was in front of me, and I was behind, and I was the brakes, and we'd slide down this very uh, steep hill, and the only brakes we had were my hands that I was had on each side of the sled, 
and it also helped us steer. And we were going down this very fast hill, and it was kind of icy snow. Went down the hill and smacked my hand right into a, a rock that was sticking out of the ground that I didn't see and smashed my pinky. And wow, it really hurt. And I wanted to cry, but I was a man, and I couldn't do that. And this was only on Friday, and the, the vacation had to go for another two days. And so I just pretended like, oh, it'll be all right. Oh, I'll shake it off. And I kept sticking it in the snow. And uh, the pain actually never went away over the course of two days. And I thought, well, eventually it's going to get better. And I didn't want to go to the doctor, even though it was looking really severe and bad and puffed up. Because I didn't want a diagnosis. I didn't want to hear what he had to tell me. Um, so I resisted that. And so after about a week, it was still painful. And, uh, and I was in anguish, and I shared that with my wife. And she said, too bad, you don't want to go to the doctor. What am I supposed to do about it? And so uh, I said, yeah, that's true. Uh, I'll just suck it up and be a man, and maybe it'll get better. And another two weeks went by, and three weeks went by. It wasn't getting better. It was getting worse. And so finally, I decided, man, I think I need to go see the doctor and get a diagnosis of what is wrong. So I did. I went to the doctor. They took an x-ray, and the, uh, the doctor told me that the x-ray revealed that my pinky had been shattered in about seven different pieces. Uh, and he said, why didn't you come three weeks ago when this happened? He began to reprimand and chastise me and make me feel like a total idiot. Uh, because now that you've waited so long... Uh, the bones have actually started growing back together. And we have to go in there and rip the bones apart and put them all together and pin them in and everything else. And you should have come three weeks ago. Why didn't you? And the reason I didn't go in is because I did not want to hear the diagnosis. I didn't want to hear the doctor tell me, your, your finger is broken and it needs to be fixed. So I paid the penalty. I paid the cost. Uh, and now I don't have as much use with my pinky as a result, whereas it could have been better had I been open and willing to hear a true diagnosis of what was wrong with me. So, all that just to say, we need, it takes humility to be willing to listen to an accurate diagnosis of our true state, be it physical or spiritual. And so let's go ahead and look at Ephesians chapter 2 and see if we can uh, follow along the Apostle Paul and listen to his diagnosis of how we were lost and dead in our sins and how Christ saved us to get an accurate diagnosis of where Christ brought us to. Uh, Paul says there, chapter just right up front, he says, And you, Christian, you were dead in trespasses and sins. That's where he starts. That is his thesis. You were dead. Death. To be dead means you are unable to respond to an exterior or a, a stimulus from outside. So if you're physically dead, you can't respond to a physical stimulus of any kind. And if you're spiritually dead, you can't respond to a spiritual stimulus, which would be the activity and the work of God. So somebody who is spiritually dead cannot on their own respond to God whether it's His voice, His call, His spirit, His word, uh, whatever it is. You are totally, utterly incapable to respond to God. And Paul reminds us that we were spiritually dead at one time before we came to Christ. Spiritually dead. And he says we were dead because why? Because of trespasses and sins. Our trespasses and sins. Those two words that he uses there. Those are two words uh, that speak of sin. Two different kinds or components or elements of sin. They're the two most common words for sin used in the New Testament. Trespass. Trespass means to cross the line, to go over the line, to go too far. That's a kind of sin. We go too far in our own way. This is speaking about acts of commission. Things we do we should not be doing. Then he uses another word for sin, and that's, he just calls it sins, and it's the Greek word hamartia, where we get the word hamartiology, the study of sin. And that's a very specific word for sin. It means to fall short. So it's kind of the complement of this word trespass. Trespass, you go too far. On hamartia, or the word for sins here, you're not going far enough. You're falling up short. You don't meet God's standard. And this speaks of acts of omission. 
So that covers every kind of conceivable sin there is. There are acts of commission, we do things we shouldn't do, and acts of omission, when we should do things and we don't do them out of a heart of rebellion or neglect towards God. And because of those kinds of sins that have overwhelmed our life from the very beginning, Paul says, as a result, you were dead. Totally unable to relate to God in any capacity whatsoever on your own. That's who you used to be. That's who I used to be. That's who the Apostle Paul says he used to be. Now he goes on in verses 2 and 3, and this is what I want to highlight in our notes today, is Paul tells us how sin affected us in six areas of our life. How we were spiritually dead in six facets or areas or components of our life. Because he goes on to very specifically nail us and show us how we fell short with respect to a life of sin. So I want to share those six with you. Paul goes on and says, You were dead, totally unwilling to respond or unable to respond to God, because of your sin, trespasses and sins. And he tells us six ways why. Here's the first one in verse 2. He says, Because in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. When you were spiritually dead and didn't know God and didn't know Christ and Jesus wasn't your Savior... You lived, number one, you had a sinful lifestyle, he's saying. So that's number one. Paul's reminding us we had a sinful lifestyle because we were lost, spiritually dead. Sinful lifestyle, we were of the world, is what Paul's talking about. Before you became a Christian, you formerly walked according to the course of this world. The word for world is a very specific word. It's cosmos. It's talking about the evil world system that reigns supreme on this world. It's talking about the values of this world, the aspirations of this world, what is popular in this world, the ideas of this world, the teachings of this world. If you were to think about and assess the evil, wicked world system in which we live today, what, were, what might be some synonyms you might come up with to describe this evil world in which we live? I did that and I thought of some. And these are the very antithesis of God's spiritual world. This world in which we live, this sinful, fallen world system is characterized by that which is temporal, getting the here and now, living for here and now, eat, drink, and be married today, for tomorrow you die. So it's living a lifestyle that isn't even cognizant of eternal reality or consequences. It's live for today, because there might not be a tomorrow. And who knows, there probably isn't an eternity. There's probably nothing after the grave. That's very characteristic of this world's system, living for today, no eternal perspective whatsoever. Other things that characterize the system of this world, of this sinful, fallen world. That according to Paul, it says we used to walk according to this world. By the way, the word for walk used consistently in the book of Ephesians talks about a lifestyle. This was our lifestyle. This is how we conducted ourselves. Daily, it was routine. This was the pattern of our life. So we lived a lifestyle in accordance with this world. We enjoyed this world. We were part of this world. We felt comfortable in this world system. It was characterized by things that were temporal uh, immediate gratification, instant gratification. Isn't that true of our world and society today in every conceivable manner? Uh, materialism. Madonna, she even wrote a song and was proud of it. The material girl. That's what this world is all about. Get as much as you can. He who has the most toys at the end wins, says one bumper sticker. What's popular? Let's do what everybody's doing because everybody's doing it. That characterizes the system of this world. This world is also characterized, this world system... It, by world religion, false religion. We live in a very religious world, in a very religious society, but the problem is it's false religion, isn't it? It's deceptive religion. This world is characterized by entertainment. As a matter of fact, we work today so we can spend as much time as possible to be entertained, right? Says the world. 
So our, system, our world is hedonistic, pleasing self. America is becoming more and more of a secular world, isn't it? Trying to push away God and religion and every vestige of anything that has to do with biblical Christianity, if at all possible. Yesterday we were watching Little House on the Prairie, and at the end there's uh, Charles, uh, or the Ingalls, and Laura Ingalls uh, is talking to some mother who lost her 12-year-old daughter, and she's struggling with depression and hallucinations, and she's having problems, and little 12-year-old Laura Ingalls tells her at the end of uh, the episode that you need to reach out to God and God can help you. Only God can help you. That was the answer. That's how the p- television program ended. And the lady got a smile on her face and the God that Laura Ingalls was talking about was the Christian God. And we were thinking about as a family, now how many television shows today here in America would give that kind of counsel? That to solve your problem, to meet your needs, to overcome depression, to overcome the death of somebody in your family, look to God and Jesus Christ. You are not going to hear that today in America on a major television program. All that just to say our society and our world is becoming even more and more secular and anti-Christ and anti-biblical. And so that is the world system that Paul says that we used to live by, live in accordance with, and we were in sync and harmony with it. And as a matter of fact, uh, we liked it. We were comfortable. So I ask you right now, Christian... Are you comfortable in which the world you find yourself living today? Are you comfortable? Are you happy? Are you content all the time? If you are, that's bad news. If you are, that should be a red flag. Because if you're a Christian, you should be uncomfortable in this world. We should feel like we're constantly swimming upstream or going against the grain. If you like, feel like you are frustrated, you're swimming upstream, you're going against the grain of the mass of humanity and the world system of the day and everything that's popular, that's a good sign. Because the Bible says this is not our home, is it? Our citizenship is where? It is in heaven. It is in the future. It is not here. It is in the afterlife. It is not of this world. But Paul said, before you were a Christian, you lived a sinful, wicked lifestyle because you were a member of this world. And Paul reminds us we've been saved out of that. But Paul goes on, not only are you sinful because by virtue of your lifestyle, the way you used to live it, he goes on with the second point. He says, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the power of According to the prince of the power of the air. That's the middle of verse 2. Paul says, before you became a Christian, you walked or lived a lifestyle that was consistent with the prince of the power of the air. Some translations say the ruler of the power of the air. It's talking about the same person, and it is a person. It is a satanic person. That's just simply a reference to the devil. So you could put the word devil or Satan in there and get a fuller meaning of what's that saying. And that's pretty dramatic of what Paul is saying here. He's saying before you became a Christian... You lived in accordance with the things of this world that were sinful. Not only that, you lived in accordance with Satan himself because he's the one that rules this world system. According to the prince of the power of the air, Satan, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, meaning Satan is working on the hearts and the minds and the lives of everybody else in this world who is not a Christian right now. That's heavy-duty stuff. But we need to be reminded of it as Christians. 1 John chapter 5 Uh, The Apostle John reminds us at the end of his epistle in verse 19, he says, the whole world lies in the lap of the wicked one. In other words, Satan has control of the evil and many things going on in this world. 2 Corinthians 4.4 says that Satan has blinded the minds of unbelievers. And, And Paul calls him the God of this world. That's Satan. That is scary. And Paul says, you used to walk in accordance with Satan, who is the God of this evil world. He was your master. You were his slave. You were a servant of Satan. Now the resistance is going to be on our part to say, no, I was never a Satan worshiper. 
Satan and the devil was never my master and Lord. Well, Jesus would say, well, actually, he was. Even if you don't believe it, Christian, he was. So if you have your Bible, go to John chapter 8, where Jesus talks about this. In John chapter 8, he's having an open public dispute because of his teaching got interrupted by the prideful Sadducees and Pharisees and other Jews. So then he gets going back and forth in some bantering with them over ultimate reality. And some of these people who were arguing with Jesus and confronting him were people who actually claimed to be disciples and followers of Jesus at one time. But as he taught more and more, they resisted more and more of what he was actually saying, that he was equal with God the Father. They couldn't handle that. So they're starting to get angry with him. So Jesus begins to rebuke them. And in John chapter 8, verse 42, listen to what Jesus says to these Jews who believed they said in the Old Testament. They were religious, had the Old Testament memorized. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, and Jesus is implying God is not your father. Even though you think God is your father, God is not your father. If God were your father, you would love me. If God were your father, you would love Jesus. For I proceeded forth and have come from God. For I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I am saying? And Jesus gives the answer. It is because you cannot hear my word. You can't hear the truth. Verse 44, and here's why you can't hear the truth. Verse 44, mark it in your Bible. You are of your father, the devil. The father, I mean, the devil is your father. You are his offspring. What an indictment. And he said it publicly. Highly offensive to those people. But Jesus said, you are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies, and you are of your father, the devil. He's a liar. That's what Jesus said to these men, to these Jewish men, to these Jewish religious men. That's unbelievable. So in essence, Jesus was saying there's two kinds of people. There are people who are the, the children of God and there are people who are the children of the devil. According to the Bible, there's only two categories of people in the world today. It's very clear. Jesus said that. The Apostle Paul says that. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 6 real quick. Very important. Because a lot of times, Christians, we, we need to be reminded of this because we forget this reality. Sometimes we want to think there are more categories of people in the world than what the Bible says. The Bible says there are only those who are saved and those who are not saved. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul says the same thing Jesus just said. The Apostle Paul reminds Corinthian uh, Christians, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, he says to this. He says this to the Christians. Do not be bound or yoked together with unbelievers. So he's talking to Christians. Christians, don't be yoked together with unbelievers. People who are not saved. People who don't know Jesus. Now watch how Paul just keeps two categories of people the entire time, spiritually speaking. Those who are believers, those who are unbelievers. That's it. For what partnership does righteousness... So he's equating believers with righteousness. What partnership does righteousness have with lawlessness? Who does he refer to as lawlessness? Unbelievers. So there's only two categories. Unbelievers and believers. Righteousness and lawlessness. Or what fellowship does light have with darkness? Paul calls the believers light. He calls the unbelievers darkness. Only two categories of people, according to Paul. Verse 15, or what harmony has Christ with Belial? He likens Christians to Christ. He likens unbelievers to Belial, the devil. That's harsh, Paul. But again, only two categories of people. This is spiritually speaking in terms of their soul as they stand before God. Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? That's it. Two categories of people. Sometimes we look down and think, oh, there's three categories of people or more. There's Christians, non-Christians, 
uh, really bad people, and then good people like Oprah. Or those good people out in society who aren't as bad as Adolf Hitler, who haven't murdered anybody. Hey, but they're doing good things, and they're nice. And then we're making the categories fuzzy. From God's perspective, there's only two categories. Believers, unbelievers. Those who listen to God's word or Jesus' word, those who don't. Those who know Jesus, those who don't know Jesus. Jesus said it again, unequivocal, uh, uh, emphatically in Luke chapter 6. Again, he said there are evil men and good men. That's it. And he said, and the difference was those that knew Jesus personally. Luke chapter 6. Only two categories of people. And that needs, we need to be reminded of that as Christians because that's how we need to view the world. That's how we need to view every individual we ever meet. And that is, does this person know Jesus Christ? What is the state of their soul? What if they died today? Where are they going to be? In heaven or in hell? And that needs to motivate us as Christians in terms of how we relate to people, how we minister, how we evangelize, and how we pray. But number two, go back to number two and go back to Ephesians chapter two on your handout there. As Paul is reminding us that before we became Christians, we, are, we were byproducts of the devil himself. And so, uh, put in the blank there, sinful lineage. We had a sinful lineage. We came from Satan himself. He was our father. We were pawns of the devil. And that is a controversial truth. I mean, if the Bible is saying that every unbeliever ultimately is an offspring of Satan and that the devil is their father. How many unbelievers are going to be willing to listen to that and agree to that? You go up to somebody who's not a Christian and say, you know what, if you're not a Christian, you are of Satan. They're going to be offended, they will get angry with you, and they will deny it, won't they? They will deny it. I am not a Satan worshiper. I don't believe in the devil. Well, I believe the devil exists, but I don't worship him. I don't follow him. I believe in God. So it's a reminder that Unbelievers, they're not just pawns of the devil, they are unwitting pawns of the devil. They are like puppets being used by Satan and they don't even realize it. And that's why it is so dangerous and that's why the Bible uses the word deception. Their eyes have been blinded by Satan. They can't make an accurate spiritual assessment of their own lineage and who they belong to. So your average believer is not going to believe this truth. This is only a truth that has been revealed to Christians who can truly understand it, of what is really going on. So we had a sinful lineage because we were pawns of the devil. And we have been saved from that. That is a great truth that we've been saved from that. Number three, Paul goes on. Here's more a part of your autobiography. As a sinner, the Apostle Paul says. He says, number three, that uh, just fill in the blank there. Because of your sinful desires, we indulged our lusts. We were given to our sinful desires. Paul goes on in uh, verse three. He says, among them unbelievers, we too, the Apostle Paul includes himself, all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh. Paul said that before he was a Christian, even though he was a Pharisee, I mean, before he was a Christian, even though he was a Pharisee and very religious and memorizing the Old Testament and very fastidious and trying to observe all of the laws, uh, Paul could look back as a Christian now and realize that when he was an unsaved religious Pharisee, it was true of him that he lived in the lusts of his flesh. Every Christian lives in the lusts of their flesh. By the lusts of the flesh here, Paul's very specific. He's talking about these internal passions and desires that we have. Every person has them. We all have passions. We all have desires. These are deep-seated inclinations we have because we are human beings. Now, passions can be either good or bad. Passions can be either sinful 
or useful. It depends on how we use them or what drives them. Paul says we were driven by our flesh. And the flesh consistently is talking about our fallen humanity, sinfulness, that part of us that is not redeemed. So all these passions, desires, these deep-seated inclinations that we have, fantasies, this is talking about the most personal, intimate part of your life that goes on mostly only in our minds that we know of. It's secret pretty much from everybody else. The lusts and the passions and the desires and the fantasies that we have. Paul said, before you became a Christian, you just lived in that kind of lustful mindset on an ongoing, regular basis. That was just a part of a habit of your life. These wicked, unredeemed desires. We all had them, Paul said. Paul admitted he had them. I know I had them before I got saved. And they ruled my life, these hidden passions. And did you know the sad thing is, in our own humanness, we can't change these passions, these sinful desires, these sinful inclinations. We can't, can't do it on our own. These are what lead to you know, perverted behavior, addictive behavior, compulsive behavior. That's what it's talking about. And left to our own resources, we cannot overcome those passions and lusts in our own strength. We need God's help. But that characterized our life. Just ongoing, continual lust before we got saved. Well, it didn't stay at the level of lust. It began to manifest itself. Because it starts inside, doesn't it? It starts in the heart. It starts in the mind. It starts with the passion. It starts with the perverted lust or desire. And then eventually it's going to manifest itself through an action, a word, a deed, a thought, whatever it is. It's going to manifest itself. Sin does. And that's what Paul says. So he goes on. In verse 3, among them too, you all formerly lived in the lusts of your flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. So a second part of verse 3 there, he tells us, we didn't just have these passions and desires, we indulged them. And the Greek word there means we did them, we practiced them, we put them into practice. We manifested those, these lusts. They couldn't be controlled or contained anymore, they had to give vent to their desires, and they did, and they did in the course of our life. So number four, we were dead in our trespasses and sins because of sinful actions. Sinful actions. In other words, we lived wicked lives. Now, just so you know, as we're going through this and the Apostle Paul's diagnosis of what it was like before we got saved, if you got saved later in life, this is going to be easier for you, easier for you to identify with. It's kind of black and white, a lost, pathetic, despicable, sinful Life, and then you came to know Christ and he transformed and changed your life dramatically. So it's very black and white, and that's exactly what Paul's laying out here. Here's how you used to live, here's how you used to think, here's how you used to be controlled, and now you are like this. And the reason that's true is because Paul is writing to first-generation Christians, the Ephesians here, because they got saved out of a lifestyle of sin. They were Gentiles for the most part and got saved out of a debauched lifestyle for a long period of time. And so their salvation was very dramatic. But if you have grown up in a Christian home and you've grown up in the church from the time you were born and you've been listening to your parents and you believed in Jesus from the time you could ever remember, from the cradle, you've always believed in Jesus, I've always believed in God, I've always believed in the Bible, I've always wanted to please God, I've always wanted to know God. And maybe you got saved at an early age, be it three, four, five years of age, and, and now you're 30, 40 years old. It's going to be very hard for you to identify fully with what Paul is saying here. Because you don't have this black and white, wretched, past life as an unbeliever for 20, 30 years. That you can now look back on and compare it to your life in Christ. 
So somebody who's grown up in the church and somebody who's always identified Christ in their life may not be able to identify at the deepest of levels that maybe some of us who got saved later in life can. And you know what? That's good news. Because you know what that might mean? That might mean that God saved you from a lot of this stuff that you didn't have to go through it. You didn't have to uh, be subjected to 20 years of sinful behavior that plagues you 20 years later as a Christian and you can't seem to shake it. But maybe because you grew up as a Christian, you were privileged by the grace of God to not even have to contend with that. And you have victory in a way that somebody else may not have. So that's just a reminder to keep in mind as we go through this passage. Giving ourselves to sinful actions, Paul says, when we were not saved. Giving full vent to these desires and they come out. Uh, Go back to chapter 2, verse 2. Just a reminder there regarding uh, our wicked deeds that were a part of our lifestyle. Satan is working on people who are not saved and he calls them sons of disobedience. They are characterized by just doing sin. That's what they do for a living. That's the way they've perfected it. They are sons of disobedience. That's what you, you used to be, Christian, before you got saved. Given over to sinful, wicked deeds. But we got saved from that by the grace of God. Paul goes on. Number five, we were dead in trespasses and sins in light of our sinful thoughts. In other words, we were totally self-centered. Our worldview was consumed with self. And every decision and thought we made was consumed with self. We were the epicenter and circumference of everything we thought about or cared about. And it all started in the mind. Wicked thinking. Paul says in chapter 2, verse 3, look at there. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and the desires of the mind. So Paul admits we had a carnal mind, a fallen mind, a darkened mind, a sinful mind. This is talking about our thought process, our ability to reason. Everything about sin affected us. Our emotions, our physical body, the environment in which we live, how we relate to people, and including our thought life. Our thought life has been tainted by the sin, and that's what Paul is saying here. Our thoughts have been affected by sin. And before we became Christians, our thought lives were prone and given to wicked, sinful thinking. And it was all self-centered because it was all hell-bent on fulfilling our desires. What is good for me? Egocentric is the epitome of sinfulness. And that's what Paul said. We were dead. Number six, Paul goes on. It says, you were spiritually dead in your trespasses and sins. Number six, because of your sinful nature that we inherited at conception. That's at the end of verse 3. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and we were by nature. There it is. We were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. By nature, very specific word. Paul says we are sinners by nature. That answers the question to number three, four, and five. Well, why in the world do sinners, did we have ongoing, continual, lustful, wicked desires and sinful, wicked actions on a regular basis, and sinful, uh, wicked thoughts on a continual, regular, uh, habitual basis. And that is because, by nature, we were sinners. Well, when did we become sinners? Every one of us is a sinner, by the way, because at the end of verse 3, Paul says, even as the rest. That means all of humanity. Every person ever born into this world is a sinner. Paul includes himself. We, too. Every person is without sin. That's what the Bible says, right? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, is what the Bible says. Every person that has ever lived... All throughout history, saved Christ alone, has been a sinner. When did we become a sinner? Well, people and different theologians and different religions have their answers about when we became sinful. Mormonism formally says that you become a sinner at age 8. 
Oh, how'd you like to hear that on your eighth birthday? Congratulations, blow out your birthday cake. You are now a sinner, wicked and pathetic, and you need to be saved. Praise the Lord. No, you don't become a sinner at age eight. Uh, But the Bible addresses that. Let's go ahead and look. Uh, I put there in the handout, sinful nature, which we inherited at conception. Some people would say at birth. No, it was at conception, because that's the testimony of Scripture. If you have your Bible, look at Psalm 51, verse 5. I mean, Paul even hints at it when he says we we were sinners by nature. That means inherently in and of ourselves, innately, we are sinful and we're sinful. Which means it had to have happened before birth. But Psalm 51... Here's David writing this psalm, asking for forgiveness of sin. And he has been convicted by the Spirit of God regarding his own sinful life. And a a string of horrible things that he did over the course of a year. And he was convicted and he finally repented of that sin, horrible sin. Ask God for forgiveness. And look at verse 4. Uh, Psalm 51, verse 4, here's David with a broken heart, crying out to God, asking forgiveness. Actually, verse 1, he says, Be gracious to me, O God. And God was gracious to David and forgave him. Verse 4, David reminds us, Against thee and thee only I have sinned. When we sin, we're sinning primarily, first and foremost, against God, a holy God. I've done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless, when you judge me and chasten me. I'm a sinner, David is admitting. Well, when did you become a sinner, David? Verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. This is written in Hebrew, and the Hebrew terminology is very specific, and it means exactly what it says in the English. David admitted, acknowledged, and through the Holy Spirit revealed to all humanity that David inherited a sin nature at the point of conception. He was a sinner before his mother gave him birth. And you know what? That's true of every one of us. We inherited a sin nature at the point of conception. We were born sinners... And as a result, that's why we had a lifestyle that was sinful and desires that were sinful and actions that were sinful and a thought life that was sinful because we were only doing what was natural. It comes naturally to us. We are by nature professional, perfected sinners. And we need our nature changed and overruled. That's why Jesus said every one of you needs to be born again. You need a new nature. And it only comes through knowing Jesus Christ personally, believing in Him and who He is and what He did and in His gospel. And Jesus promised that if you believe in Him and trust in Him, He would give you a new nature. And primarily He does that by giving you the Holy Spirit to live inside of you the moment you truly believe in Him. And the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of us, the Christian, and we literally do. We have a new nature. We have the nature of Almighty God Himself living inside of us. And at that point, the Holy Spirit helps us overcome all of these other things that used to be true of us. We're no longer a slave to sin now that we're a Christian. We have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. We have a new master. His name is Jesus. And God the Father, and using His Word, the promise is that we can resist and say no to these sinful thoughts, sinful temptations, sinful actions and desires and say no to the sinful world that wants to suck us in and say no to Satan who no longer owns us and has mastery over us. And greater is he that is in us than it is in the world, right? Amen? Amen. That's the promise for the Christian. So Paul wants to remind us in light of the great gift of salvation that we have of what we have been saved from before he goes on to talk more and more about how great our salvation is and what God expects of us as Christians. So let's be reminded of that. Let's be reminded of our heritage, how God saved us from the depths of sin. And at the same time, 
Anybody that you know today that is not a Christian, this is true of them. This is their biography. This is who they are. They are slaves of sin. They are slaves of the devil and probably unwittingly, unknowingly, unwillingly from their perspective, yet they're lost. We need to pray for them, their salvation, that Christ would have victory over their life as opposed to Satan. And God will answer that prayer. He will be faithful and we need to pray that way and seek God's help in that regard. So right now, let's thank God together as a body. If you could bow your heads and close your eyes and pray with me. And let's thank God for the great work that he has done on behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ by giving us a new nature and a new life and a new future in him because of Christ. Father, we thank you so much for the gift of salvation. Thank you for the fact that it is by grace, which means it is free because only... You could do what was necessary to save sinners. We couldn't save ourselves. We were dead in trespasses and sins. As a matter of fact, your word even goes on to say that we were enemies of you. We wanted nothing to do with you. But through your Holy Spirit, you drew us to yourself. God, thank you for graciously through the Holy Spirit calling every single one of us, wooing us to yourself, even against our own sinful inclinations, and saving us. God, I pray that you would put on our hearts to be prayerful, to be considerate, to be burdened, to be heavy-hearted for anybody that we know in our life right now that is not a Christian, be it a co-worker, a relative, a neighbor, whoever it is, God, that we put them on our prayer list, that we would pray for their salvation, we pray the Holy Spirit would soften them, convict them of their sin, and that we would be bold enough to share Christ with them so we can see them transformed and changed, and that it would all be for your glory. We commit this all to you. We thank you for it in Christ's name. Amen.